Medicine has come a long way in the last 100 years. Before that, the practice of medicine was just that, practice. Most physicians were not equipped with an adequate knowledge of biology, anatomy, pathology, and the nature and cause of most diseases was unknown. And this left most doctors to just completely speculate on treatment. For example, up through the 1800s, the most common treatment for a wide array of illnesses was bloodletting. And doctors believed sickness was caused by an imbalance in the body's fluids, and that's treated by bringing that back into balance. The easiest way to do that was just drain some blood. So never mind that you're battling pneumonia. Let's take a few liters of blood. That'll help you get better. (laughs) Also in the 1800s, there's a widely prescribed pill called the blue mass pill. It's used to treat headaches, mood swings, indigestion. President Abraham Lincoln famously was on the blue mass pill. Just one problem that one of the main ingredients was mercury, which we now know to be very toxic. And one daily dose of blue mass contained about 100 times the limit of mercury today. He thankfully stopped taking those pills. You know, in the pre-modern era, there was just vast ignorance about medicine and disease. So most physicians were well-meaning. They just didn't know better. Now, there were some people, though, who they knew they didn't know better, but they just wanted to take advantage of people and take their money. We refer to such people as snake oil salesmen because originally that's, that's what they did. I mean, you can picture the old west town. The traveling merchant comes through. He's selling this panacea elixir, this cure-all medicine for any disease you might have. Just take a few sips or drops of this snake oil and you'll be healed. In reality, it was just mineral oil with some herbs and spices. Sometimes they included drugs like cocaine, amphetamine, or opium. But the merchant would make a sale and then quickly leave town before the people realized they were duped. We can be very thankful that medicine has come a long way. But that being said, just just pretend that you were somehow transported back to the 1800s. So you're living in that time. And you come down with a terrible flu and the doctors diagnose you and they prescribe for you, you know, to get better, you need to take the blue mass pill or we need to take a couple liters of blood from you. That's how you're going to get over the flu. Would you let them? I mean, knowing everything you know now, knowing what you know today, would you... Would you do it? I mean, you, you know better. You know that draining blood is not going to do anything and ingesting mercury is literally going to poison you. But they're doctors. They know what they're talking about, right? And literally everyone in the medical community of that day believes that's the best treatment. So would you do it? I hope and trust you would say no. Even if everyone alive believed otherwise, you just now, you know better. You're not ignorant about these things. You have some knowledge, so you're not going to do that. That doesn't mean you can necessarily prove everything you believe to others, but you know enough not to put yourself in danger, not to get taken advantage of. And it just goes to show that the power of even just a little bit of knowledge against error. And as Christians, spiritually speaking, that this is exactly what you need to be like. And that's because in the spiritual world, much like the ancient medical world, the spiritual world is is still flooded with ignorance and falsehood. And the only difference is, whereas we've largely moved beyond ignorance and and quackery in the medical world, in the spiritual world, we have not. And there are plenty of people still out there that are claiming to be experts on questions of the soul, on the person of God, on the nature of the afterlife. But they, they don't know what they're talking about. They're ignorant of the true God. 
They're operating based on speculation. And furthermore, there's no shortage of you know, spiritual quacks, the false teachers, the deceivers. You want nothing more than to stumble the faith of Christians. They're selling a spiritual bill of goods. Just hey, listen to them for the answers of life. They know the, the way, the secret way to contentment, to happiness, to fulfillment, to wholeness. Just follow them. And you know what? Most people do. Most people like to think of themselves as spiritual, and they will follow the latest person who talks a good spiritual talk. But that is a bad purchase, for their way ends in death. And the spirit of the age is poison. It leads people to feel like they're close to God or spiritual, but in reality, they're being dragged further and further away from the one true God. So like I said, as Christians, you need to know better. You need to know and be convinced of the truths of God in Scripture. It's the only source of true spiritual health. It's the only safeguard against falsehood. And so you need to be so rooted and grounded in the truth that you can easily spot danger and malpractice and spiritual poison. You know, there's a long list of other worldviews out there from other religions like Islam, Buddhism, to Christian cults like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, to philosophies like New Age mysticism, humanism, evolutionism, atheism. You also have the new sexual ethic, the, the religion of the LGBT movement. And there's no shortage of views in the spiritual marketplace. You, I trust you're here, you, you claim to buy into Christianity, but what will you do when other worldviews challenge your worldview? When they poke holes in your faith, when they make stronger claims. And what will you do when it seems like very few people believe like you do anymore? Now you're in a minority. Will you buy into what they're selling? Will you take their medicine? Many do. They fall and then they fall away. But I'll tell you, the vast majority of those who fall away, they do so because they were spiritually ignorant They didn't know better. They didn't know the truth. They were not rooted in scripture. Their faith was anchorless and it made them easy prey. And so look, in today's age of massive spiritual confusion and ignorance, all the more so as Christians, you need to know what you believe and you know why you believe those things. And above all, you need to know who you believe, namely Christ Jesus for he is the way, the truth, and the life. And God has already given you all the answers you need for spiritual wholeness. And they're found in Christ. You need to know him. Spiritual malpractice is still rampant. But drawing near to Christ through a full understanding of God's truth in scripture, that is God's own prescription for you to stay strong and avoid sickness. And this is a prescription that is largely the subject of the whole book of Colossians. Look, the whole book. It's especially the case in our passage for this morning, which is now in Colossians chapter 2. So you can take your Bibles and open them to Colossians chapter 2. I mentioned several times that false teaching was on the rise as Paul writes this letter to the Colossians. But it's really only now, only as we start getting into chapter 2, that you really first get a sense of how real and present the danger was. 
Spiritual frauds were denying the deity, sufficiency, and supremacy of Christ, claiming instead to know the real way to spiritual fullness. And young Christians, and these were young Christians, if they didn't know better, they could easily be duped. And so Paul writes to help them know better. And this letter is an inoculation against false teaching. Like an airborne virus, if falsehood gets inside the church, it could lay waste to this young body. So Paul, not wanting to see them get carried away, he writes to give them like a vaccine. And that comes by the truth, by a full and well-rounded understanding of God's word, God's plan, and primarily God's son. And just like with your body, the best way to fight off infection is just to promote your all-around overall good health. And so it goes with the body of Christ. If they're strong in the truth, they'll be able to weather the, the coming spiritual flu season. And so this, this is an inoculation against error. Really, the whole letter of Colossians is in many ways an inoculation against error. But that's especially the case with this passage here. We're going to get our first dose of it this morning in Colossians 2. So we're going to read verses 1 through 5, our passage for today. Colossians 2, and look at verse 1. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea, And for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. And that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. And Paul is shifting gears here, and he's starting to deal with the threat of false teaching. And so he shares his concerns for the church. And as he does so, we can derive a a prescription to ward off spiritual illness. And this is a medicine we still need to take. For the same epidemic of error is, is alive and well. And so from this passage, we're, we're going to try and find four prescriptions for spiritual health, you might say, to help the church ward off error. And four prescriptions for spiritual health. And the first being this, the church needs strengthened hearts. The church needs strengthened hearts. And look again at verse 1. And going back, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for all those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who've not personally seen my face. And so Paul begins by sharing his struggle on their behalf. He's been wrestling for them, wrestling over them. And this word struggle is derived from the same word for striving back in the previous verse in chapter 1. Remember, Paul was laboring. He was striving to present Every person complete in Christ. And he's saying now, like, that struggle involves you. He's struggling. You too, Colossians. I've been struggling for you. He, he had the same goal that by God's power, he wanted to see them complete in Christ. But not just them. He adds a second group. He says, and for those who are at Laodicea. 
Now, Laodicea was the closest neighboring city to Colossae. It was you know, 12 miles to the east. And they're the main cities of the Lycus Valley, which is in modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor. And Laodicea was just more, it was wealthier and more prominent than Colossae. It was the center of industry and commerce. And just, you know, just picture the difference in distance and prominence between Arroyo Grande and San Luis Obispo and kind of get the picture. Now, interesting side note, you know, when the Lord Jesus, he addressed seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Remember that? He did not include the church of Colossae, but he did include the church of Laodicea, just a few miles away. They were known for their wealth, but a life of ease led to spiritual complacency. They became lukewarm in their faith and their love for the Lord. So he rebuked them. He called them to repent and be zealous in Revelation 3.19. You know, the Christians of the Lycus Valley, they started strong. In Paul's day, they were going strong. But they still needed these exhortations to pursue Christ with zeal. You can't let up on the gas pedal ever. There's no time for coasting in this world. And failure to heed these words would diminish their fire for the Lord. And in just one generation, that's what happened. And I pray we don't make the same mistake. This applied to the Colossians. This applied to the Laodiceans. And now Paul adds a third group where he says, And for all those who have not personally seen my face, And Paul had not met the vast majority of these Christians face to face, but he had them all in mind in his ministry labors. And likely he's including here the Christians of a a city called Hierapolis. This is the third main city of the Lycus Valley. It's just north of Laodicea. And Paul will mention them by name at the end of the letter. So just fast forward to Colossians 4.13. And he says, speaking of Epaphras, For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Is that the same three groups? You know, these three cities were close communities. There's a lot of interaction between them. That also meant they were going to share the same foes, the same false teachers, which meant they also needed the same strengthening and encouraging. So Paul struggled for them all in this regard. Back in chapter 1, we learned that this struggle largely took the shape of prayer. Even though he never met them, he, since he heard of, oh, there's Christians in the Lycus Valley, he's been praying for them ever since he heard about them. But this struggle also included this very letter. He is writing to them that they might be strengthened and encouraged in their faith. And that becomes evident in verse 2. He's struggling for them all, verse 2. He says that their hearts you know, may be encouraged. And in English, when we read hearts, you got to be careful. Because we quickly think of emotions or feelings. We see the heart as the center of our emotions and feelings. And so like on Valentine's Day, to express your, your feelings of love for your spouse, you might get them a, a card shaped like a heart or a box of chocolates shaped like a heart. Even though that's not what a heart looks like, but... But not so for the Greeks. You know, the ancient Greeks did not view the heart as the center of your feelings and emotion. No, rather, that belonged to the bowels. I'm not joking. They viewed the gut as the center of your feelings and emotion. Instead, the heart was seen as the center of your personality. It's your inner man, your inner self. And scripture uses heart in this way. It's the core of your being, your mission control center for your thoughts and your will. And so a prayer for your heart 
is a prayer not just for your emotions and feelings, but for your, your inner person, your, your spirit, your will, your resolve. And so accordingly, Paul's struggle on behalf of their hearts, it's a struggle for who they are on the inside. And specifically, he wants to see them strengthened in their hearts. He wants to see their inner selves encouraged or strengthened. It's a familiar word, this word for encouraged or strengthened, parakaleo. It means to come alongside someone, call alongside someone. One person might come alongside another person for many reasons. To encourage them, to exhort them, to appeal to them, to comfort them. But a good word to capture what Paul means here is, is to strengthen them. And he wants these young Christians to be strengthened in the inner man. He wants their desires for the Lord to be built up because of what's coming ahead. And this word parakaleo in ancient Greek was used of a military commander encouraging his troops. Now a military troop might suffer a defeat in battle. And it might take the will to fight out of them. Right? They, their morale would be low. They might lose the will to fight. So the military commander would come alongside of them, you know, parakaleo. He would then speak to them to encourage them, to strengthen them, literally give them courage and strengthen their will and their resolve to fight. And that is the idea here, that, that Paul himself is coming alongside these Christians in this whole letter to empower them in their spirits in preparation of, of the conflict, that the battle that lies ahead with these worldviews. And yet the church today similarly needs this type of courage and strength in hearts. You need resolve in the inner man to trust God no matter what. And I think that's especially the case in our age and our culture. And it's been like a, witnessing a stunning blitzkrieg to see how the, the sexual revolution has just swept over our whole culture and just changed and redefined and reshaped everything. And that has put the whole world, it seems, on a collision course with the church. And it's left many Christians stunned. But what are you going to do about it? Will you, you know, buckle and give in? No, what the church needs right now is strengthened hearts built up with the will to resist. And there may be no stopping the, the cultural shift in America, but God's faithful. He's still on the throne. He's still going to work out all evil for good. But we need to receive strength in hearts too that we might trust him just to carry on in the faith no matter what happens. And we're going to see shortly where such strength in hearts come from. But first, let's add number two now. The church needs united muscles, if we can put it that way. The church needs united muscles. Now, Paul knows that the spiritual stability of these Christians is not just tied to their, their inner strength, but also their outer unity. You might think a, a single tree is strong, but it's no match against a great storm. And left by itself, the, the tree will bear the full brunt of that storm, and it's a good chance it, it will fall. But when they're clumped together in a forest, they have a way of you know, bearing the load or, or spreading out the load of the storm and for protection. And I think of all forests, the aspen forest or aspen trees are probably the most resilient and that's because they actually share a root structure. And a forest of aspen trees underground all grows from one single root structure. And even if the whole forest burns down, the roots endure and the forest will reemerge. 
And I think that's a good picture of what the church needs to be like. Just united together as one and rooted together as one. We're united together because we are rooted together in Christ. And that's how the church will endure even facing great opposition. And so Paul goes on to express this, this struggle for them. Verse 2 again, that their hearts may be encouraged. And he says next, that, that having been knit together in love, that they would be knit together in love. This term knit together is used to speak of you know, body parts being joined together. So you think of a muscle. We associate muscles with strength, but you probably know your muscle is really just a collection of much smaller muscle fibers and muscle cells. By themselves, they're weak. But when they're all together, when they're knit together, they're strong. And likewise, the body of Christ needs to be united together, knit together in strength. And such unity is essential for standing firm. And this unity is in turn dependent on love. He says united together, knit together in love. And love is the atmosphere in which unity thrives. And that genuine Christ-like love for one another will serve the purpose of, of drawing believers closer together. And just like Paul will tell the Colossians in chapter 3. Chapter 3 verse 14 he says, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. That this, this love for one another is the glue of the church. You know, one of the reasons that this, this call to unity is so important is because your, your spiritual growth is correlated to unity. That God designed the church to be one body with many different members. The body is designed to grow when all those different members come together as one. That's how the whole body grows and that's how each individual grows. So you just, you just have to learn the lesson once and for all that you know, your spiritual growth is not a solo sport. You're not going to grow very much alone. Iron sharpens iron. But if you're always alone, you're going to remain dull. And coals together heat each other up. So they burn hotter. But if you're always alone, your, your fire for the Lord will grow cold. God's design is that his people would stick together, that they would be huddled up, that they might sharpen one another and fan the flames of faith in the hearts of one another. But you know, the importance of unity goes beyond just spiritual growth and that we we find that this unity in love is also absolutely essential to spiritual stability, you know, to not being led astray, to not being duped by false teachers now, I'll tell you, the vast majority of times someone wanders from the faith, they weren't wandering from a serious commitment to a local church. They were already kind of off on their own, detached from the body. And what do you know? They get lost. But it's only when knit together like a strong muscle will the church be able to support one another and fight off error. It's really interesting how several times Paul uses this term for knit together to speak of the church's stability in a context of resisting error. You have it here in chapter 2 and later in the same chapter. Then in verse 18, he's going to warn against those who seek to defraud them of their prize through false beliefs and wrong practices. These are so-called Christians who they're committing spiritual malpractice. And how'd they get that way? He says to them, look down in Colossians 2.19, 
He says of them that they were not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. They didn't cling to Christ. They drifted from the body. Therefore, they didn't grow. And now what do you know? They've wandered from the faith. He says the same thing over in Ephesians 4. And if you want, you can just flip backwards a couple pages to Ephesians 4, you know, 14 through 16. He says in verse 14 of Ephesians 4, he says, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. I mean, talk about danger. Talk about spiritual hucksters and snake oil salesmen. It was, wasn't new back then. They're still out there. You, you, don't, you should not fall prey. But how can you resist those who seek to deceive and lead astray? Well, he says in verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. What he's saying basically is that the best defense is a good offense. With plants, there's no end to the number of diseases and pests that can infect them and take them down. And you can't target them all, all the time. Rather, the best course of action is just to promote the all-around growth and health of the plant, and they'll defend themselves. And so it goes with the body of Christ. It's so important that we're all rooted together. We're knit together in love, and we're rooted together in Christ, and just being filled and fueled by abiding in Christ together. That's how the body will grow, and that's how the body will ward off error and danger. Let's keep going here. Number three, you know, a third prescription for the growth and health of the body. The church needs assured minds. The church needs assured minds. So he continues verse two. He expresses a third concern, a third struggle he has for all of them, that they would be, that they would have strength in hearts, that they would have united mu- or muscles rather, and that they would have assured minds. So again, verse two. He struggles for them that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love. And then he says, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. That's a good example how the NASB, if you're using the NASB Bible, strives to be very literal, but sometimes does forsake some readability. It's a hard phrase to translate in English. It literally says, you know, to all the wealth of full assurance of understanding. What's clear, though, is that this is a big goal in Paul's concern for them, that he desperately wants them to reach a place of understanding. Let's just kind of break this down in reverse order. So start with that word understanding. And the word for understanding in ancient Greek was used to speak of two rivers that came together as one. And so it later went on to mean, you know, putting things together, drawing conclusions, putting thoughts and, and concepts together, understanding the relationship between them. And so we're we're talking about comprehension. He wants them to comprehend the faith. 
He wants them to really get it. And that's because such understanding comes with something else. It comes with, he says, assurance. So he wants them to arrive not just at understanding, but he says the full assurance of understanding. Or this is the full assurance that understanding brings. And so with assurance here, we're talking about deep convictions and complete certitude. Full assurance is where you know what you believe and you know why you believe those things. You might say today, like, it all clicks or the light bulb is turned on. Like, you, you actually get it. You start to get what this whole Christianity thing is all about. Have you ever had one of those, you know, epiphany moments where true understanding leads to settled conviction? You just take, for example, the, the deity of Christ. Now, at some point, uh, I'll, I'll imagine you came to faith in Christ. You heard the gospel of his death his resurrection, where he died on the cross and rose from the dead to to pay the full penalty for our sins, that we might now be forgiven and and saved, reconciled to God by faith in Christ alone. You heard that message, you believe that message, essential to that gospel message is, is the nature of Christ, including his deity, which relates to his ability to make a full and complete payment for our sins. And so you were told that, hey, you know, this Jesus, he's God incarnate, and you believed it. But it's one thing to say you believe in Jesus as God in the flesh. It's another to have full assurance that he's divine, that that, that's true. And where does that full assurance come from? It comes from understanding. It, It comes from understanding. You'll only go so far if you base your faith on what other people tell you. Or on what you're supposed to believe. It's like, hey, oh, you're a Christian now. Well, here's a list of things you're supposed to believe. Okay, that that works for like one year. But all of those beliefs will be challenged and they will be attacked. And at the end of the day, if the only reason you believe those things is because someone told you or you're supposed to believe them, that's not going to hold. You know, you need deep understanding. You need to study the Bible. You need to go to the source of God's truth itself and figure it out. Be that Berean where you're seeking, you're searching, you're finding, you're getting answers, you're digging into God's word. Or be like Queen Sheba, 1 Kings 10. She heard of Solomon's wisdom and wealth, but didn't believe it. That that can't be true. But she just had to go see for herself. She had to see it with her own eyes. So she went, she sought him out, she examined him. And she found that his wisdom and wealth far exceeded what she had heard. But you likewise, you seek out the wisdom and wealth of God's word. See it with your own eyes. And you're going to find a treasure beyond your imagination. But you have to go seek it. You need to base your Christian faith, and your Christian living on understanding. Not on just like culture, not on how you were raised. You have to base your Christian faith and your Christian living on understanding. Only understanding will lead to full assurance where everything just finally clicks. You put two and two together. You see the grand relationship of Scripture, God's Word, and God's plan. It finally makes sense. You need to get to that point. And when you get to that point, when you have the full assurance that comes from understanding, you will have a treasure indeed. 
And so Paul calls that here in verse 2, wealth. And continuing to work backwards, he wants them to attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. And full assurance is a treasure because that's what God will use to, to keep you on the path of eternal life, to keep you from being led astray. The truth will enable you to withstand error and opposition. You won't be duped by the spiritual snake oil salesman because well, you, you know better. You know your Bible. You can point to a chapter and a verse like, this is why I believe these things. Understanding leads to firm conviction. And that leads to a treasure of assurance. That no one's going to derail your path in Christ to eternal life because you know the truth. So when the Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, for example, challenging the deity of Christ, well, at least you know better. You know better. But this goes just far beyond just the deity of Christ and includes all of the essential truths of the Christian faith. Now, I can't even summarize all those issues here, but just learn for now the principle that you need an assured mind. The church needs an assured mind. If you haven't already, just resolve to figure things out. And it's time to figure out the faith. Like, what do you really believe? What do you really believe? Why do you believe those things? Why are those things true? Get in scripture. Search, dig, find, see for yourself. See with your own eyes and God will use that to build up your faith. And he'll use that to guard you from error. That's especially the case when we find Christ in scripture. And so we can finish now with with a fourth prescription. The church needs focused eyes. The church needs focused eyes. In finishing verse 2, he's struggling for all of them, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. And then he says, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, And that is Christ himself. When you dive deep into scripture, getting to know God's, uh, an understanding of God's truth, you also gain a knowledge of this mystery, which is Christ himself. And now we're really talking treasure as he goes on to say in verse three, speaking of Christ, he says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now the center point of understanding is Christ himself. It's not enough to simply know the propositions of Scripture. The goal is not just to know a doctrinal statement. You're trying to get to know a person, a Lord, a Savior. You have faith. Saving faith is in a person, not a doctrinal statement. A person, Christ Jesus. And so you must come to a true knowledge of him. And Paul uses an intensified form of the word knowledge here. This is, this is a real deep personal knowledge. I mean, your faith, after all, is in a person. You should probably get to know that person. And so what the eyes, or rather what the church needs most, are eyes fixed and focused on Christ. And Jesus is the mystery of God revealed. And Paul used this word and talked about this mystery back in chapter 1, verse 27. A mystery speaks of a truth previously unrevealed in the Old Testament. But now it's been made known. It's, it's no longer hidden. You know, the full treasure trove of God's wisdom and knowledge 
and the complete revelation of his will, it's been made open, made complete, made known in the person of Christ. So that means you could ask God questions about his will, his plans, his purposes for this world. He's just going to point you to Christ. He's already answered those things in Christ. Everything is summed up in Christ. And so Paul says that in Christ are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This pictures Jesus like, like a treasure storehouse. All true wisdom and knowledge are, are in him. Which means you don't need to look elsewhere. You don't need the so-called guru, the, the expert. You definitely don't need to turn to the culture. It's just the blind leading the blind. Look to Christ in his word. And this wisdom now is an open secret. Right, the rich truths of God's plans and purposes for this world. He's, he's published them. They're, they're made open. It's open source. It's for all to see. They're found in Christ. Those in the world have no access to them simply because they refuse to see Christ. But those of faith who humble themselves to follow him, they, they gain access to this treasure house. And you have the key of faith and you open it up and you now have the full treasure of God's wisdom and revelation and knowledge for life, the meaning of life, the meaning of your life, you have it all. It's found in Christ. So I would just ask you, do you have eyes that are focused on the author and perfecter of your faith? You know, seek him in his word. Behold his, his deity, his humanity, his sufficiency, his supremacy, all of which are, are highlighted, for example, in a book like Colossians. And Paul knew that's what they needed. Colossians is just a heavily Christ-centered book. It's one of the greatest little letters on Christ. And he saw these Christians, their faith was real, they were going strong, but man, this, this flu season of attack on Christ, it's coming. The writing's on the wall. And they need a vaccine, and that, that's found by, well, let me just let me show you who Christ is. Let me tell you what he's like. Let me show you his supremacy. He's building them up and rooting them in Christ that they'll stand firm when those attacks come. To withstand all opposition, they needed to be grounded in Christ and and we need the same thing. You and I have to hold fast to the head of the church, which is Christ. Now, our time is nearly up, but let's just briefly include verses 4 and 5 here, which are transitional, but they, they remind us, really drive home, why Paul is even saying all this. So, real quick, look at verse 4. He says, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. This actually, this verse right here is our first hint in Colossians itself that no trouble was brewing in Colossae. To delude means to deceive and mislead by way of false reasoning. And that right there is the source of so much pseudo-Christian error, right? You know, taking verses out of context, making them mean something else, reading into scripture. That's how many people twist and distort the word. And we recently watched a a clip of a prosperity preacher, Kenneth Copeland. He quoted the verse where Jesus said, you know, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. And then he said in response, yeah, but... But he never said we couldn't get that treasure out now. Like, you're kind of missing the whole point. (laughs) But you see the ignorant and the unassuming and the anchorless, that they fall for stuff like that. It sounds persuasive to them. 
In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter warned against the untaught and the unstable who distort the scriptures to their own destruction. And that danger still exists, and we need to likewise be on guard. As we've seen that the antidote or the, the vaccine of falling prey to those who distort the scriptures is just to know the scriptures. You know it, so you're not going to buy into something like that. And with eyes focused on Christ, I mean, you know your faith inside and out, you'll be able to stand firm. And thankfully, though, we can say, at least at that point in time, the Christians in the Lycus River Valley, they were standing firm. Just finish from verse 5. He says, for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline. And the stability of your faith in Christ. No, it doesn't mean that you know, Paul had some out-of-body experience. You know, he's in Rome there in Colossae like he was mystically dwelling with the Colossians. No, it just means that through the unity of the body of Christ, via the Holy Spirit, all Christians have a real type of fellowship despite distance. The body is one, united by the Holy Spirit. And in that spirit, Paul was in a sense, present with them as their apostle. And he heard of their faith and he rejoiced because they were holding fast to the head. He says he saw the good discipline and the stability of their faith in Christ. That's a pair of military terms. Good discipline was used to describe an orderly rank of soldiers. And they're standing in line shoulder to shoulder. They're not going to break ranks in battle. And stability was used to describe a military front that was that's unbreakable. It's like the Western Front in World War I, if you know your history. It was an unmovable front. It just didn't budge. And so Paul is kind of pictured here like a visiting general. He's inspecting the troops. And he sees them. These guys are together. They're in rank and file. They're holding the line. And he's pleased with what he sees. And every church and every age needs to be like this. But the battle is very long. And so the church needs to keep up this stance for a long time. It cannot for any length of time lapse into spiritual laziness or complacency. That will give the enemy a window of attack. So discipline is still needed. Like Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, 7. Discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. You take all the discipline you apply to your body or to your work or to your hobbies. Just, just add some discipline for the sake of godliness, he says. And so now it's our turn to pick up these marching orders and to take this spiritual medicine that we may carry on the fight and just stand firm in the faith. And for this, the church still needs strengthened hearts, united muscles, assured minds, and focused eyes. Most of all, eyes focused on Christ. If I can just drive this whole thing home, you know, several weeks I told you about Joshua Harris. He's the prominent Christian pastor and author who recently just totally renounced the faith. Well, I think just a week ago, something similar happened. This time it was Marty Sampson, one of the leaders and songwriters of Hillsong, who's probably the most popular Christian group I think there is. He similarly just revealed he's losing his faith. He wrote, quote, I'm genuinely losing my faith and it doesn't bother me, end quote. Then my question like, hey, why? What gives? 
And you read his statement, it becomes very clear. He just ran out of answers. That his faith was not rooted and grounded in Christ via the truth. It was just based on emotion. And so when all these challenges came, and when other voices sought to delude him with persuasive argument, he just had no more answers. And they chipped away. He admits this himself. And carrying on in his statement, he writes this, quote, How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be loved yet send 4 billion people to a place called hell all because they don't believe? No one talks about it, end quote. But you see, he's expressing just common issues people have with Scripture. The existence of true miracles, supposed contradictions in the Bible, the reality of an eternal hell. But in reality, you know, these are all very basic issues that are very easily answered. Scripture is not even a little bit confusing on these issues. And so if you've been a Christian in the church and a worship leader for how many years, and you can't contend for the faith on these like very basic issues, how does that happen? And I'll tell you, it happens when your faith is based on emotion and feeling. It happens when you believe simply because like, you're supposed to believe these things. And Samson confessed this was the case. He said later, he, he desires genuine truth, not just the, I, I just believe it kind of truth. I agree with that statement. You should not just believe something. You should have genuine truth. But that's still found in an understanding of God's word. But you see what he's reacting against. He believed what Christians are supposed to believe. He would check off. I believe in God, the Trinity. You know, he believed in salvation, the afterlife, sexuality, morality. He believed the right things. But his faith was not grounded in the word. It's evident he never knew why he believed in those things. He never had the full assurance that comes from understanding. And so when challenged, and you're all going to be challenged, he had no answers. And so eventually the, the sandcastle foundation of his faith just crumbled away. It's just a matter of time. It's sadly not surprising, you know, when you have a Christian subculture that views Jesus not as the treasure, but the key that unlocks another treasure, be it miracles or healing or experience or signs and wonders or wealth, you know, the focus is still on self. And that's going to result in a weak body, and weak bodies are just prone to sickness. But we have to be different, and you have to be different. Your, your faith will be attacked and challenged. But I pray you respond in a steadfast manner by heeding this spiritual medicine. And just drawing near to Christ through his word and really getting to know his person. Being built up in your conviction through understanding. For, tem- for some of you, it's just, it's just time to figure things out. Been a Christian for a little while, but it's just time to figure it out. What do you really believe and why and grow? And then once you achieve that understanding, you just know the word, it will lead you to live out your faith now with boldness, unashamed. And so I pray that we can share the confidence of the Apostle Paul. This confidence he expresses right before he's about to be killed in opposition to his faith. But nonetheless, he says in 2 Timothy 1.12, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know 
whom I have believed. And I am convinced he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And I pray you and I can be so convinced as well. Let's pray. Now, Father in heaven, we need that, that convincing. We need assurance. We need the full assurance that comes from a depth of understanding in your word, your truth. Because such assurance will lead us to live out our lives and our faith as you've called us to. Lord, you call us to be bold, to share the gospel, even when it's scary. To live out and follow Christ, even in a culture that is starting to hate the way of Christ. We cannot do these things without boldness and assurance, yet we will have no real meaningful assurance without truth, without understanding. This is how you've designed it. This is the foundation. It's just up to us now, Lord, to respond and, and seek. And I pray we would truly live up to our namesake and be those Bereans who are not content with just a doctrinal statement. We need to know you, God. We need to know what we believe and why. Most of all, we need to know Christ. There is a Savior. He has come. He has died for us and risen again. And in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If that's true, and that is true, why are we not going to this open treasure house now? Convict us to go to Christ, to go find him in his word, to be built up and strengthened. That is your prescription for our spiritual health and stability. And in this day and age, we need that ever so more. So be with us as we resolve to do so and just seek Christ in his word. Fill us with the knowledge of your will and understanding that we just continue to be built up into Christ's image and steadfast come what may. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.